So first and foremost. I think the the addition of pant leggings is really when you start to see your heroes get watered down. Can't even muster the ability to play straight pants that one. Uh, which is a good argument for absolute rulers. Everybody is going to get behind me. They're going to love me. And my support numbers will go through. When you hang out with the hero, it doesn't go well for you. My grandfather yeah. took the cop and just slid it right through the bar. Okay. And that became the dominant way our family did it. Okay. And so, <laughs> in both of my marriages, they were treated to that. Okay, wait, hold on. Yeah, rage haiku. How do you imagine the rubber chicken My grandmother actually vacuumed in her pearls. Oh my god, it all makes sense. We've had the sexual revolution. It yeah. might have just been a Canadian standoff. We're going to go back to 9-11. Dude, get over it. Mm-hmm. No, Agra has no business being that <laughs> thick. With the cultists, we all win. This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher here in Northern California. And uh, earlier this evening, uh, I wound up going out to dinner uh, with my wife and son uh, for the first time. This is the first time we've been out to a restaurant in a while. Um, And it's the first time we've been to the particular restaurant we, we went to. Uh, since actually it's been literally years. Um, I think the last time we went was right before she and I got married. Um, so it's been a while. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. We had a great, our son had a great time, great time. Um, and, uh, what kept being driven home to me while we were there from the fact that we wound up waiting over an hour to get seated when we showed up at like four 30 in the afternoon, um, through just, you know, stuff that happened with, with our meal and our drinks and everything else is, uh, this, this is the first time I have actually been out and about and seen how terribly short staffed restaurants have been since, since the height of the pandemic. Um, I don't want to say since the pandemic, because as we, you know, repeatedly mentioned here on the show, the pandemic isn't actually over yet, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it is definitely the first time since the height of the pandemic, since, since the worst of the worst that I've actually been out and about and noticed just how very stressed out all of the staff were the service was was still fine nobody was snappish or less than wonderful like everybody we dealt with was was great but it was also really clear that they were busting their asses mm-hmm. and things were still running slow because everybody was just overworked so that was a sobering kind of this is what the world is now kind of moment, you know. So yeah, it's just just a just a thought, just something that I I noticed being out and about for the first time in a long time. Uh we are however much 
a lot of people don't want to accept it. We are living in a world that has a new normal. And I think that's what got driven home for me. So that's me. How about you? Well, Sir. I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a U.S. history teacher and a Latin teacher uh, here in Northern California. Uh, and yeah, I, I, it feels like we as a society have outkicked our coverage. Yeah, like as long that's a good. Yeah, it, it's it a really feels good like analogy. Yeah, as long as as long as everybody hustled at a perpetually increasing rate, it all seemed to hum along. But now that uh, people didn't because it ceased to be worth it the ripple effect is that everyone else is still wanting everyone else to hustle but and i'm not saying you guys did um but there's like this expectation that uh everyone that is pictured as a fixture of a place is yeah. still supposed to hustle yeah and and uh we're not and yeah and i'm seeing that you know from 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 our perspective as as teachers as well uh, as far as what's going you beat, on, you beat me oh. to pointing that out because I yeah. was going to say, yeah, as, as teachers, we're, we're on one end of that. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but as far as what's going on over here, my daughter just got her bivalent booster. So yay, we are as vaxxed as it gets right now. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. That's uh one less thing to worry about as yes. much. This is that true. said, uh, it is getting colder. The flu season yep. in Australia is worse than it's been in years. Uh, luckily, the flu shot includes that strain. So please go get that flu shot. Yeah, uh, I I certainly plan to. And the flu is hitting us sooner than it normally does, too. In addition, there are several versions of COVID coming over from Germany, and they've already made their way to the East Coast. And there's a few of them coming up here. Uh, so, yay. Yeah, and and our our drop off has never gotten below previous levels. It's yeah. just it's the same pattern. It's almost yeah, like it's a sine wave. Yeah, it, it's almost like we're <clears throat> hearing the same melody at a higher octave. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, that higher octave yeah. means you know, four hundred people a day dying means bad shit. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's all bad. None of it's good. Um, the, the one that's coming over from Germany is escaping immunity anyway. Uh, and we, as a country have stopped tracking it almost entirely, unless there's clusters of three or more in certain places. Um, even in here in California. Uh, so there's that and there's no mask mandate anywhere at all, even though a mask would actually help prevent a thing that is working its way around all vaccinations. Yeah. So yeah cool <laughs> on a on a side note yes. um all all three members of my family got our vaccinations earlier Yay. today wonderful um our I'm son is not now, ready though. for yeah <laughs> um our son is not ready for his last installment of okay. covid yet he still has another couple of weeks but he got his flu shot and cool. uh the wife and i got uh double shots Cool. Uh, one in each arm. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow we're we're not going to be able to get anything done because yep, both arms are gonna hurt like fuck. Yep. Yeah, a lot but, of friends got uh, the combo. That is, oh yeah, yeah. A yeah. lot of friends have gotten the combo this weekend, so I'm very yeah. happy to happy for everyone. 
Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's worth the sore arm uh, to mm-hmm. be able to go to work with, you know, a little bit lower level of anxiety about yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah. So cool. All right. Oh. So speaking of gloom and doom, uh, yes, uh, yes. When, we, sure when, we, when we left off uh, last episode, I had given a uh, fairly brief summary, I guess, of uh, the global catastrophe situation right in 1982 when blade runner uh had had uh had come out mm-hmm. and i believe i had gone over uh i know i'd mentioned that the title blade runner was taken from a completely different property yes as i recall one called okay. blade runner yeah whereas this uh, was the plot for this was do androids dream of electric sheep yes yeah and so kind of a dick move. Yeah, uh, nice. Thank nice. you. Uh, actually, a Norse. God damn it. The guy's name. Move. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Alan <laughs> Norse was the uh, was the writer of the actual Blade Runner. Gotcha. Novel. Gotcha. Um. So, but in in the film mm-hmm. Blade Runner, mm-hmm. uh, Harrison Ford winds up playing Deckard and there are some significant differences um, between the Deckard of the book and the Deckard of the movie. And I'll, I'll kind of get to the comparison later on. Uh, But what's, what's very notable is that Deckard in Blade Runner is a very dramatic shift from the other parts that Harrison Ford uh, was, was playing at the time. Of course he had catapulted to fame Mm -hmm. as the cocksure han solo sure smuggler and and lawbreaker and all around you know, rogue yeah yeah and he i think around the same time i'm trying to remember exactly when i didn't look it up and i should have but raiders of the lost ark 81 has him okay yeah so so raiders of the lost ark has him as indiana jones Right, pulp hero, archaeologist, Nazi puncher, and all around tough guy. You know, I was curious about that too. I was wondering, and and you may well get to this. It, it feels like stunt casting, and at the same time, he is now playing three different types of character, all from the same era. He's playing a uh, sci-fi Flash. Rogers, Flash Johnson, Flash, Flash Gordon, Gordon, Jesus Christ! You're thinking of Flash Gordon? Yes, I am. Uh, okay, but a Flash Gordon type character. So you've got yeah. your spaceman Spiff of the 30s. Yes. Um, he's also playing a pulp hero, and okay. then he's in this noir, which film noir is also kind of you know fun. very yeah, well yeah it's very much 30s 20s 20s and 30s was when yeah. it was like biggest you get and then for it and it was yeah much better so yeah, but and, he's playing well actually it's it, it's a creation of the talkies yeah so, so he's playing three different 1930s type characters you know that is not in my notes but it is interesting it, it is it is an interesting thing to note that mm-hmm. yeah the the archetypes that he's getting pulled into uh, for these films are all taken from that same kind of era. Do you think it's because of his smirk? Like, the thing is, in Blade Runner, he doesn't smirk. That's true. The, the, well, the, the interesting I mean, for the fifteen minutes I saw of it. Yeah, <laughs> before before you fell asleep. Yes, because yes. dark and you know low low volume and rainy and rainy. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, the rainy, here's the thing. The rainy is incidentally noir, but it also has a reason. There's a reason in, in the plot and in the meaning of the film, mm-hmm. because that's, that's the environmental devastation happening. But anyway, we're, we're going to get to that. We'll get there. Yeah. So, but Deckard is methodical, melancholy, and decidedly not cocky. Um, when, when he winds up in situations of peril, like mm-hmm. all of the times in Blade Runner in which he winds up in fear for his life, it's at the hand of the replicants that he's hunting down. Okay. Uh, because they are, they are faster than he is. They are stronger than he is. And he nearly more than once, twice in the film, he nearly gets beaten to death Ooh. by, by his own targets. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that when, when I summarize the plot, I'll get sure, to it. sure. but it's, it's a very different archetype in, in the sense of the character of the character that he's playing. Indiana Jones is not, Indiana Jones is angry. Like there's, there's a significant amount of righteous anger like he and and both he and Han Solo have in common mm-hmm. that they're operating by the seat of their pants ninety nine percent of the time. Right. And Don't I, know. Well, I I'll just think of something. I, I came up with a plan. Right. The the plan is put on a burnoose and sneak inside and right. and then fuck shit up. Like that's the plan. That's what we're gonna do. You know. Now that I think about it, though, because this movie came out in what eighty two. Eighty two. Okay. So we've seen Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Um, and so you've got Han Solo, who in episode five gets tortured mm. and is shown mm. in a diminished capacity. This is true. Uh, dragged in, uh, can't hold himself up. Mm. And in Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones absolutely gets the shit kicked out of him. Uh, oh, yeah. That famous scene where she's like, well, God damn it, Indy, when, where doesn't it hurt? And he points to a spot on his elbow. <laughs> right. And he, yeah. this is after he's been dragged under a truck. Like, yeah, it's, it's, oh, it yeah. was he took a hell of a beating. And that's, that's yeah. something that I really liked about Indy is that you saw yeah. the wounds. Yeah. But he got his ass kicked by bald Nazi guy. Um, yeah. He got his ass kicked uh-huh. you know, by by other Nazis. Oh, you're thinking of the propellers. Yeah. Um. See, here's the thing: as the son of an aviator, <laughs> mm. my my father actually had to had to put his head between his knees when he saw that oh. in the theater. Gotcha. Because because it brought up real world memories. Gotcha. Being on a carrier deck. Sure. I'll sure. Leave it at that. But anyway. But <sighs> so you've got. I mean, Harrison Ford in 1982 has played three different characters. Yeah, all three from the 30s, and all three get the shit kicked out of them. Like he has a type. Yeah, this is true. Like he is, is being yeah, typecast he, oh, here. He, like, he does a little bit, a little bit. You know, but it's the... like when Dennis Leary plays an Irish cop, and then he plays an Irish thief, and then he plays yeah. an Irish fireman, and then he plays hmm. an Irish priest. It's like, huh. you know, and and you can picture all of them being cousins or possibly even brothers in the same family. Yeah, easily, easily. Like you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, because they're all from Boston. Right. Uh, <laughs> like there you go. It's Dennis yeah. Leary. But um, so so it's it was the thing is the the nature of the characterization and the nature of the script for Blade Runner 
being as it was a based on a new wave science fiction property right is much more there there is a higher level of literary the word that comes to mind is pretension but ambition would be a better better term for it okay and so Ford was really eager to do the part because he read the script and it was uh, much more serious and it gave him more of an opportunity to do less broad performing because Indy, Indy and Han Solo are both very broad. Yes. Yes. You got to do some internal. Yes. There's, there's a lot of internal going on. Yeah. Which he hasn't done since apocalypse now. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Ford and Scott, uh, so, so Ridley Scott directed Mm -hmm. the film. And, uh, during production, uh, he and, he and Ford did not get along, did not get along. I could see why on both ends, to be honest, having listened to interviews of both men about (laughs) thoroughly unrelated Um, things. Yeah. 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 And Ford, uh, does not, does not actually consider Blade Runner one of his better films. Okay. Like, like a missed opportunity for him. Um, not so much a missed opportunity, just there was so much stuff that got meddled with. Okay. And uh, Scott had a very, very, very specific kind of vision. And so Ford did not get to Act. do a lot of his own right. decision making. He, he didn't get to make a lot of his own choices in the film. And I think that's basically what it boils down to. Interestingly, now, years later, the two of them get along fine but they had a very contentious relationship on the set. Okay. Um, I could see that though. Cause like, yeah, there are some directors where they, they basically say, well, I hired you to do the job, do the job. Like I trust you. Yeah. Do the thing I'll tell you, I'll tell you when we need a little tweak here or there, like, you know, speed that yeah. up by 15 seconds, that kind of thing. Yeah. And there's other directors who like actors historically have claimed, Oh, I didn't act at all on that because yeah. i was literally told every step to make like yeah. you know i'm looking at you out <clears throat> hitchcock um yeah yeah but... directors directors who treat actors like marionettes Pops. yeah you know yeah. which uh, ooh, like marionettes that's an interesting phrase considering the alfred hitchcock tv series mm-hmm. opens with that music which is the mm-hmm. dance of the marionette yep okay but anyway, yeah, so there's uh, I could see Ridley Scott. Um, he controls uh, so many aspects of so many things because he's mm-hmm. a visionary director. I wouldn't yes. say he's an auteur. Not quite. Visionary director. Yeah. Um, he will later on in his career. He gave people the room to kind of stretch a little bit and improv a little bit. Um, but he was still pretentious as all fuck. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. he actually had a real hard time. Because yeah. he came over, he came over from the UK, and right. this was all being produced in in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And he'd been working at at studios in in the UK previously, and so there was a very different onset culture. Yeah, you're there to work, and, and yeah, and I I don't remember exactly what the phrase was, but crew members as a group all together got mm-hmm. T-shirts that said something like fuck governor g-u-v apostrophe n-o-r because he complained about i'm the director i'm the boss right i expect you know i guess there was there was a a kind of a british class kind of thing 
mm-hmm. you know, expecting a certain level of deference, and the crew were like, uh, you fuck you. Yeah, no. right. Which is weird because they in England they had to deal with union stuff even stronger than they have in in the U.S. Yeah, it's, well, it's 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 union. There's there's the union stuff, and that mm-hmm. wasn't that wasn't the issue. It wasn't like okay. labor practices. It wasn't like you know you're gonna you're gonna keep working. I'm gonna you know work you until you drop dead. It wasn't anything like that. Okay, it was you know giving instructions and you know not having the same level of you know uh, snap to it. Gotcha. Going on and not having the level of of you know deference to him as the guy in the big chair mm-hmm. kind of thing is my understanding okay. based on based on what I was able to see. But all of all of that conflict, the conflict between Scott and Ford, and the conflict between Scott and the, and the crew, that all fails mm-hmm. in comparison to the conflict between Ford and Scott and the studio. Mm. Because the studio looked at it and they were like, there are so many things here that we need to change. Oh, wow. The audience is not going to get this. And the biggest one, the biggest, 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 most painful one for really everybody involved was the studio insisted on voiceover narration. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what version you have tried to watch and fallen asleep to. I think it had Rudger Hauer talking. Well, the, the voiceover was for Decker talking. Yes. Decker, Decker does the voiceover. So what you were probably trying to watch was, was the theatrical, the original theatrical release. No, I was watching the director's cut because I I have a, a, a policy of like, um, I tend to watch what the director wanted to put out first. And then I'll go back and watch what all of us got to see. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and, and very often it turns out that the studio was right. So, in this one, mm-hmm. well, we'll Sounds get like to not. it. Sounds we'll like get, not. We'll get. We'll get to it. I mean, it, it really depends on because the choices that the studio made mm-hmm. made a different point with the movie. That's why where you change the message of the movie. It's your, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, they, they were looking at it like, this is, this is too deep. This is going to be like crazy pants over people's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want voiceover and Ford didn't want to do it, but he mm-hmm. had cited contract and he had to, and Scott didn't want to do it, but he didn't have creative control. And so they were, they were forced to, <laughs> to record voiceover bits. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it wasn't until the director's cut came out that that that, that finally got eliminated. But yeah, so the, the whole production was full of conflict, like all over the place. And so in the film, a group of highly advanced replicants have arrived on Earth from the outer colonies. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting change here from the book in that in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it's explicitly mentioned that the colonies are on Mars or on the moon. They are here in the solar system. The, uh, the subtext in the film is that they are extra solar. They are outside our solar system. Okay. But these, these replicants have shown up on earth. There are four of them instead of six. Mm-hmm. And Deckard is given the job of hunting them down and retiring them. Okay. So at the very beginning of the movie, 
Um, he's he's out and about on the street, and it's raining. The sky is dark. There's neon everywhere, and he sits down at a at a noodle stand. And Edward James Olmos in in a a critically, I don't want to say underappreciated, but like I feel like there should be more attention given to Olmos's performance in this film. Because he, he plays this small part, but it's, it's this amazing performance. Gaff, who is another Blade Runner, shows okay. up and in a in a language called city speak that almost made up for the part, uh, basically tells Ford, you're being called back out of retirement. You, you got to come with me. Okay. And uh, I, I mentioned here in my notes, played by played with captivating weirdness by Edward James almost. Um, and so Gaff, you know, gets him in the car and, and they go to the LAPD offices and, um, Gaff is a, it's a small part, but he's important because there are a number of places where he drops cryptic little clues in the mm-hmm. form of little origami figures. Okay. He, 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 while he's talking to somebody or while he's watching what's going on between Ford and somebody else, he'll, he'll fold a little origami figure and set it down. And it's always, it, it always has a meaning, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it is he's made always has a meaning. So, um, they arrive at the LAPD offices and, uh, the police captain tells Deckard, these are Nexus six models. They are so advanced that we don't know if the Voight camp empathy test is going to work on them. Oh, so they've got, they, they're, they basically have gotten around all detection. They're, they they may have gotten around all detection. We need you to go to the Tyrell Corporation who manufactures them. Mm-hmm. And we need you to test out to make sure that the, that the test is going gonna, is gonna to spot them. Mm-hmm. And there's a back and forth where Deckard basically says, look, you know, I retired. I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, the captain kind of makes threats and, and there's references to stuff that we never figure out exactly what it is he's he's threatening, but he basically makes it clear, I'm not going to give you a choice. You're going to be the one to do this. Gotcha. And so uh, Deckard, chauffeured by Gaff, heads to Tyrell Corporation and talks to Eldon Tyrell, the founder of the company and the inventor of replicants. And Tyrell says to him, okay, I want to see the test fail first. Okay. Or no, I, I'm sorry. I want to. I want to see a replicant. Sorry, I said that wrong. I I want to see a replicant fail. And he says, "I'll have you interview my assistant, Rachel. Rachel is one of the Nexus Six replicants. So I want okay. you to test okay. her." Okay. And so um, Deckard sits down with her and gives her the test. And after the test is over, he talks to Terrell and he says, "She failed." but only just barely. Okay. She, she very nearly passes for human. Does she know she's a replicant? And Terrell tells her, no, she doesn't know she's a replicant. She has been, in addition to being one of the Nexus six models, I also had childhood memories implanted in her brain. 
So she believes she 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 had a child in her own head. She had right. a childhood, and that's I mean th- that brings in some really cool ethical questions too. Oh yeah, you know oh immensely. If you cannot tell the difference between the implanted memory and the real memory. Is there a difference? Yeah, and therefore, even though the person is a replicant, like you saw them being decanted last year. Yeah. They believe that they have lived 30 years. Yep. So yeah, that's yeah. yeah, it's 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 pretty heavy. And um so Deckard kind of absorbs that information and sobered by that thought, he heads mm-hmm. off to the last known location where one of the four uh replicants had been Leon. Mm-hmm. Uh he heads to Leon's hotel room. And while searching the room, he finds a snake scale. And he... Not a scale for measuring the weight of snakes. No, a a scale. a a measuring thing made of snakes to measure the weight of things. No. Oh. No, a scale off of the skin of a snake. They skinned a snake and turned that into a scale to weigh... Anyway, he winds up taking the evidence that he found uh-huh. uh, to a vendor on mm-hmm. the street, and um, the and this this all happens in subtext. This this brilliant storytelling and, and amazing world building. He takes this thing to this guy, and what we see as the audience is first off, constantly raining outside. Mm-hmm. Still, sky is black, rain all all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, we see the the scale on the screen of an electron microscope. And there are numbers. Okay. Etched into the scale, giving a serial number. And this vendor is able to tell him, okay, yeah, no, uh, I can trace the sale of this particular snake because it's it's a replicant snake. It's an artificial snake okay which goes back to the book that you told me about last week yes okay we don't see any the only animal we see in the film belongs to one of the replicants and it Mm -hmm. is the film version of the electric sheep that deckard has in the book Mm -hmm. um only it's a it's a python uh that was actually the personal pet of the actress who wow who played the role um, but the, all of the things that we then unconsciously realize when we see that, no, no, that was an artificial snake, almost real, very, very expensive. If you didn't know mm-hmm. androids, you now know, okay, animals, you know, animals are, are largely artificial in the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. um and that gives you the subtext of environmental devastation and everything right. else that's so going much on harder in the world. to find etc et yeah et in this yeah and and prestigious and very expensive and all and you get all of that with just those few lines it's it's that's a remarkable good. bit of bit of world building it's still weird it, it, i'm sorry but it, maybe this is my mammalian ba- bias speaking up but like mm-hmm. If you're going to get a pet at a time where the world is cold and dark and and drippy and and just bad, um, if you're going to get a pet, 
I would imagine like a chinchilla, like something really fucking cuddly. Yeah. You know, and instead they went for an animal that is self-aware, kind of like it's even, you know, it's questionable. Um, But like a snake, like it does not show affection. It does not. It You you basically like if you're snake guy, it means you're, you know, a a psycho Um, because you invite people (laughs) over to watch it kill things like that's. So keep in mind, keep in mind, it is one of the replicants that did this. So there could be. So they're just approximating. We could, we could, we could interpret that as being a subtext about right. What what Jora is her name? What she identifies with, you know, or what her, you know, um, and so, um, let's see, (laughs) I lost my spot in my notes. Um, okay. So after, uh, Deckard makes that discovery, Mm -hmm. we then cut to Leon and Roy, uh, Roy Batty is Rutger Hauer. Okay. And so Leon and Roy, two of the four, the, the two male replicants. Uh, visit a laboratory where replicant eyes are manufactured or produced, decanted, whatever term you want to use. Sure. And they encounter the scientist operating the lab mm-hmm. who is played again. There's, there's not a clinker of a performance anywhere in this movie. Uh, James Hong plays the eye maker. Okay. Um, And, and he spends the entire scene in, absolute terror because he knows exactly who these two guys are mm-hmm. and they make it very very clear we we want to get to Terrell we we know we're dying right you're gonna you're gonna tell us how to get there and uh he winds up he points them in the direction of uh jf sebastian who's a genetic designer who's also involved in the process of making replicants who is an intimate of Terrell's. So like James Hong's character mm-hmm. is, you know, part of the process and he's, you know, he, he met Terrell, but he and Terrell aren't buddies. JF Sebastian plays chess with Terrell on a regular basis and they're, you know, tight. Okay. And so then uh, Leon and Roy kill him <laughs> hmm. uh, after, after Leon spends the entire scene as, as Roy is questioning the scientist Leon is looming behind him the entire time. And he's reaching into this tank and he's pulling eyes that have the beginnings of the optic nerve hanging off the back of him. And he's pulling them out of the tank and putting them on Hong's shoulders Mm -hmm. with this kind of squelch every time he does it. And it's, it's, there is and he he does it with this combination of deep-seated rage and like he's a four-year-old who's playing with the toys it's hmm. whoa, it's yeah creepy as all hell and i'm sure hong didn't have to work very hard <laughs> to act scared sure um so then we flash back to deckard uh, Deckard returns to his apartment and he finds Rachel there. And Rachel 
mm-hmm. insists to him, no, 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 look, I, I know how the test turned out, but I'm not a replicant, okay. which is important because if she is a replicant, somebody's going to show up and you know blow her brains out because right. it's illegal for replicants to be on Earth. Uh, she says, no, no, I'm real. And she shows him a photograph of her childhood. And Deckard looks her in the eye and says that memory was stolen from Terrell's niece and implanted in your head. Okay. That's an art. That's not really your memory. Yeah. And I'm getting vibes of like total recall. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. I'm getting vibes of minority report. I'm getting Mm -hmm. vibes of, Oh God, even iRobot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interestingly, of the three you mentioned, iRobot is the only one not related to a Philip K. Dick property. Oh, really? Yeah. The other two are. Yeah. Total Recall is one of his. And Minority Report is very, like, that's taken straight out of his book. Uh, The visuals visuals are a bit different, but the themes and and every, like, the plot line of the story are basically straight out of the Dick. Okay. So he's, he is uh, very much. Like it's it's a go to for him to play with. How do you know real is real? That that epistemological yeah. type stuff. Yes. The David yes. Hume stuff. Okay, it is his jam yeah. in a huge way. Yeah. Um. So she flees in tears. I mean, logically, how else how else are you going to react to finding that out? Like mm-hmm. other other than you know blue screen of death and just you know stare at the right. wall for right eternity so um we cut away again to riss mm-hmm. one of the female of the four replicants uh showing up at jf sebastian's home mm-hmm. and manipulating her in a in a scene that very much reminds me of my ex-wife hmm. uh, <laughs> like like Rewatching this particular scene, I looked at it and went, There were so many red flags in that relationship. Like I should have <laughs> known. But um, you know, in a in a very, very ingratiating kind of way, um, mm-hmm. you know, and gives him uh the kind of attention that it's clear he doesn't receive very often. Right. You know, and and you know. We, we see her getting getting her hooks into him and uh the whole thing has these overtones of dread and okay. he's a grown man who surrounds himself with dolls and simultaneously he's a designer of artificial people yeah that's so there's there's a, you know lots of overtones and yeah um and so we then cut back to deckard Deckard finds the other female replicant named Jora uh, working at a strip club. And uh, in order to get into range to kind of take her by surprise to retire her, he approaches her after her set and says, hey, I'm from the performers union. Okay. And, you know, we've had reports. uh, We've had complaints about the management of this establishment are you okay with me coming into your dressing room to check because you know he starts he's telling her about you know i'm 
looking for hidden cameras to see if anybody's, you know, trying to peek on you when you think you're alone and all this. And uh, she gets in the shower and she's talking to him from the shower. And then she gets in the futuristic looking bubble hairdryer thing. And she's talking sure. to him while that happens. And um, she sees through his ruse, um, kicks him in the head and runs. Okay. He chases her into the street, has to has to chase her through a huge crowd, mm-hmm. um, and he winds up shooting her twice in the back. Okay. The original script, it's interesting to note, did not have him actually shooting her. She winds up running into the street, turns a corner, and gets hit by a bus. Hmm. So in the in the final script he is the one who pulls the trigger and when he does it the violence of it is not softened mm-hmm. we we see her getting hit we hear the sound of her being struck twice mm-hmm. we hear the sound of her hitting the pavement and flopping um replicants lop around kind of like chickens with their heads cut off when Uh, they die to to kind of drive home the visceral awfulness of it i think right was was the reason for that choice being made and um after he does that and when he you know lets his higher-ups know that he's he's retired one of the four he receives orders to retire rachel as well because she has fled Terrell's mm-hmm. control. She's she's no longer she's no longer there at Terrell Corp. All right. So I'm seeing that again, he plays three different archetypes through the 1930s, all of whom shoot first. Han Solo yeah. shot first. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong. Indy hits the sword guy first. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, now he shoots her in the back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, Leon in mm-hmm. in the street. Leon shows up at this point and sees him retire. Jora. Then when you said Leon in the street, like the Darmok yeah. and Jalad part of my brain just kicked in. <laughs> the real yeah. the real life name of uh, Leon in the pa- is, on of, the pavement of the the professional wrestler big van vader uh who yeah. feel free to look him up if you if you get a chance he's like 450 yeah. pounds he's called the the rocky mountain mastodon like vader just look up vader <laughs> yeah. wwe right okay his real name is leon white and so That's you know funny. you say leon in this you know leon in the street and i'm like vader in the sheet <laughs> and once you see a picture of him and then you picture him in the sheets you're just like oh oh no like yeah so i've i've <laughs> and the thing is yeah so he could do the, he the, was he did moonsaults by the way he would like do backflips onto people onto the back yeah that was his thing at 450 pounds yep yeah spangly murder gymnastics yeah yeah <laughs> like holy crap in his instance sweaty murder gymnastics yeah but yeah and <laughs> yeah, true so Leon Kowalski is the full name of the replicant in question, and he's played by the actor Brian James, B-R-I-O-N, James. 
I'm um, confusing him with a different Brian James, aren't I? I don't know. Oh, um, okay. We know him also from Silverado. Had a role in the Fifth Element. He's he was a heavy. Oh, I know uh, who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Big, um, tall dude. He's like the bad guy in Cobra, wasn't he? I could be wrong. Yeah, I might have been. Yeah. It's that's anyway. not one of his credits listed here yeah. as a highlight. Damien, but Damien guesses Cobra, that so. online thugs is normally yeah. <laughs> reserved for the episodes that are divisible by eight. But yeah, this is true. Yeah. So anyway, but anyway, he's this huge, imposing dude. Sure. Yeah, he's a big dude. Uh, and um, so anyway, he he sees Deckard shoot Jora and okay. kind of melts back into the crowd for a moment. And then when Deckard kind of moves out of the main part of the street, he ambushes him. Okay. And he's one of the ones that damn near kills Deckard. Yes. And yeah. he beats the brakes off of him. Uh, he is, he is about to beat him to death, uh, knocks the gun out of his hand mm -hmm. and is just about to crush his skull. Mm -hmm. Until Rachel appears, picks up Deckard's gun, and shoots Leon with it. Does Leon then start flopping? Um, a little bit, not as much as Jora. So but... it's heavily implied that he is also a replicant. Oh yeah, yeah. Which means they hang out in proximity to each other. Then We've yes, got... they are the four of them. The four of them came to Earth together, and they are a a team. Okay, gotcha. We've we've seen them largely separately but it's it's implied throughout that they're they're together okay so um deckard takes rachel back to his apartment mm -hmm. promises her that he's not going to hunt her down he's he's not going to be the one to retire her okay as she turns to leave he grabs her arm and forcefully kisses her after a moment of resistance she relents now it's noir okay. it's noir it's 80s neo-noir in science fiction right and so as a as a moment in that film in that time we're supposed we're expected to see this as a romantic subplot right watching it post me too it's really jarring like, you know i it this feels is like not cool like there's so feels, many layers of this it feels being so wrong. lazy um, yeah. when the romantic subplot is jumped off by a sudden surprise kiss. Like, you could have filmed absolutely no sexual tension whatsoever, and then he does that, and then you're like, oh, okay, now we have a subplot. And it's like, yeah, you, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, okay. it was it was an accepted trope of the time. Right. You know, nowadays it doesn't fly. Right. In 81, 82, you know, mm -hmm. and before. So, um, Roy, so now we, we cut away from that mm -hmm. to Roy showing up at Sebastian's apartment and, uh, Roy, uh, intimidates Sebastian into getting him access to Terrell. Okay. So, um, there's, there's this moment in an elevator at Terrell Corp where, uh, uh, Sebastian, the the not Sebastian sorry Terrell hits the call button and and asks Sebastian a chess question like you know what's 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 your move oh yeah position? you saw this in Star Trek yeah and yeah. Batty 
gives Sebastian a response. And Batty gives that response, and Terrell I'm, lets I'm them up. With I'm a, forgetting who Batty is. Batty, Roy Batty. Okay, okay. Got Rutger Hauer. Right, right, right. Very, very blonde Rutger yeah. Hauer. Yeah, okay. Um, so he gives a response and gets that up. Yeah, and they and they come up, and uh, Roy basically tells Terrell... I'm I'm at the end of my life cycle. My friends and I are are about to die. You programmed us mm-hmm. to die. Now I I haven't mentioned this here. I don't remember whether I mentioned it in our prior episode. One of the plot points in the film mm-hmm. that didn't appear in the book is that replicants, because they are built to survive in environments humans have a hard time with, because they are designed to be stronger, faster, and tougher than humans, Mm -hmm. uh, they are built in with a four-year lifespan, a kill switch. At the end of four years, everything starts breaking down. Yeah. And Batty tells Terrell, I want you to fix that. That that you need to unfuck that, like right now. I need need that fixed. Um, And Terrell tells him that's not possible that's not doable Mm -hmm. and they get into this conversation that is um this this very emotional like parent child mode kind of conversation Mm -hmm. and terrell is very much in the parent mode and roy is very much in the child mode but how much of Roy's child mode is genuine and how much of it is him acting? Right. We can't be sure, but Terrell is very clearly eating it up. Right. And Terrell, you know, tells him and, and uh, Roy, Roy admits I've done, I've done things. I've done questionable things. Mm-hmm. And Terrell brushes all that aside, just like, no, I, I understand. You've killed people. We made you to be a soldier, whatever. That's fine. Right. But, you know, look look about what you've accomplished. Look how advanced you are. Validate my you know, ego. Look at, look at everything you've done in the short time that you've had. Sure. And so he's praising him and dehumanizing him in the exact same breath. Yeah. Uh, and... We've been studying the 1800s in, in my U.S. history class. You can only imagine what... <laughs> What praising dehumanizing exists yeah. at the same breath. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And so uh at at the end of it, uh Roy says to him, I want more life, fucker. Mm. And kills Tyrell by gouging his eyes out with his thumbs. Okay. In a film that has repeated moments of shocking violence. And this is twice that we've talked about eyes being kind of the yeah. graphic thing. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that. Okay. When we talk about themes, but like this this is one of the most viscerally shock inducing moments of violence in in the movie. Um, and and so kills Terrell, and then um, we find out that Sebastian is dead later we don't we don't see sebastian get killed on screen we see him scream and run away as Mm -hmm. 
Roy is killing Terrell. The assumption is that uh, Roy finishes him off. Okay. So kind of while that's going on, Deckard shows up at Sebastian's home, encounters Chris, um, and they have a fight scene and uh, Deckard retires her, kills Pris. Okay. So we're, um, we've got three down now. Three down. Roy, right. Roy is the last one. Oh. Roy shows up. Wait, I thought, what's her face? Who's, oh, cause she was the secretary. She wasn't actually yeah. part of the four. Yeah. She okay. wasn't part of the four. Okay. She wasn't part of the four. And she, she's Sean Young, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. In, in one of those moments where young me had a very hard time remembering that, you know, crazy is to be avoided. Um, yeah. anyway, sorry. Uh, so Roy shows up and he and Deckard fight. And even as his body is shutting down, we see mm-hmm. multiple moments where, you know, Roy has trouble getting up and, and like he, he is, he is very clearly in the the deterioration of his body has begun and it's very clear but even with that going on he has deckard massively outclassed uh to the point where deckard is running away from him across rooftops mm-hmm. and uh jumps misses the jump does not sure. make the jump deckard deckard misses the jump and winds up hanging by his fingertips from the edge of, of a roof of a building Batty um, leaps after him Mm -hmm. and he has a dove in one hand and I don't remember where he picked the dove up. I I meant to rewatch, especially this sequence, Mm -hmm. but I don't remember (laughs) exactly how he got it, but he's, he's holding a bird in one hand, literally. Uh, And he turns around, looks down at Deckard. He he leaps across, turns Mm -hmm. around, looks down at Deckard and at first lectures him. He says, that's what it's like to live in fear. That's the life of a slave. And Deckard loses his grip. Batty catches him with the free hand mm. that, that isn't holding a dove. Um, by the way, that free hand earlier in the fight, um, his free hand had been stabbed okay. and pierced. So he grabs Deckard with a hand that has a hole in it, mm-hmm. picks him up, well, it's a handhold. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Picks him up, sets him on the roof. With his whole hand. With his whole hand. Yeah. Um, Before crouching and delivering one of the greatest soliloquies in film history. Yeah. I remember. I, I have seen clips of that. Yeah. And I, I remember people talking about it. Yeah. Some of the history. Of um, yeah. I have seen things mm-hmm. you people wouldn't believe attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Yeah, it's always time to die. The camera follows as the dove escapes his grip as he expires and flies off into the ashen pouring sky. That monologue uh, in the in the original script, that monologue was notably longer. Right. Uh, Hauer himself cut a whole lot of it out uh, because he said it was tech language and and it was all like 
way too operatic. Okay. And so in his own words, he took a knife to it <laughs> the night before filming. I love that and, Ridley Scott thinks something's too operatic. Yeah, well, no, Hauer. Rutger oh, Hauer. oh, okay. No, Rutger no, Hauer. no. Hauer okay. looked at the script and was like, I can't. That's too much. It's, yeah. it's, it's Rutger Hauer's version of Harrison Ford saying to George Lucas, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. Right. You know. Um, but Howard showed the script to, to Scott before filming and Scott signed off on it. And that's the version that they did. Okay. Uh, apparently the crew, when they, when they called cut, the crew applauded mm. and a number of crew members had been moved to tears by it. It nice. genuinely is. It's, it's in my opinion, it's probably the crowning moment of Rutger Howard's career as an actor. It's, it's, there are so many layers that he manages to put into you can see so many emotions passing over his face as he's doing it. It's, it's incredible. So Deckard's reaction to this is a blend of bafflement and loss. He is, he is still kind of getting over. He didn't kill me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He didn't just let me fall. Um, and like, Holy shit, I'm still alive. Mm Mm-hmm combined with and this is this is Harrison Ford doing some really good internal work you can also see as he exhales part of it is the sigh of loss of you know seeing you know witnessing a person's death this isn't just you know a biological robot you know there's right. there is there's an emotional connection there yeah and so shortly moments after that gaff shows up on scene uh you know praise you know praises uh deckard for you know having completed the contract Mm -hmm. and then says it's too bad she won't live but then who does gaff turns around and leaves deckard has to get back to his apartment on foot when he arrives he finds rachel there grabs her and they flee they go out on the lamp and now here's where we need to talk about the multitude of versions of this movie that got made right because while authorial intent means basically fuck all Mm -hmm. studio meddling means something entirely different yeah yeah so in the theatrical version of the film Mm -hmm. deckard grabs rachel they flee out the door Mm mm-hmm and Warner Brothers insisted against Ford and Scott both howling in indignation um, that they needed to show Deckard and Rachel driving away. And the ending of the theatrical release is them flying in, in the flying car of, of, of the film, uh, flying away into a sunny forested landscape. Mm-hmm. Huffy white clouds, blue skies, bright sunlight, and Deckard's voiceover, which again, Ford right. and Scott had both like screamed about, but they had to do. Uh, Deckard's voiceover ends with, I didn't know how much time we had, but who does? Okay. Which completely changes the whole point of the fucking movie. Right. Because then you see the director's cut in which there is no happy flying off into the wilderness. And as Deckard and Rachel are fleeing the apartment, 
there is a tiny origami figure on the floor. So Gaff has been there and left. Right. Now, it's also really important to note the origami figure that he leaves behind is a unicorn. And anybody who's looked up Blade Runner online anywhere Mm -hmm. has heard about the unicorn as being this thing. In the director's cut, there are there's also a dream sequence. Uh, Deckard falls asleep, and okay. there is a dream sequence in which he sees a unicorn. And the implication of the unicorn figure is that the dream was an implant. Mm-hmm. Is Deckard himself a replicant? Right. And then that leads to all kinds of epileptic trees, uh, you know, fan conspiracy theories about, wait a minute, okay, so wait, is Gaff actually like the only human? And like like Deckard's memories are all Gaff's borrowed memories. Sure. You know, like there's all this stuff going on. Um, And so Warner Brothers didn't like that ambiguity. <laughs> they, they looked at that and were like, no, we don't. This is no, that's a drag. We don't want people leaving the theater thinking about that. He's 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 human. He's the detective. He got the dame. Like, let's just, you know, right. Um, never mind. It's a noir film. How often does a noir film have a happy ending? Well, it's like, an 80s Reagan time noir uh, film. Yes. Yeah. So the director's cut got released in 92 with the unicorn sequence returned and the voiceover and happy ending removed. And then in 2007, the final cut was released theatrically and on Mm -hmm. home media. uh, And that is the only version of the film that Scott had total artistic control over. They said, all right, fine. Take, take all the material, do whatever you want to with it. And there are, you know, a couple of changes, you know, some, some shots were included that, you know, but as far as, the meaning of the film there there are two very dramatic uh interpretations of mm-hmm. of what 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 the idea behind the movie is and if you're talking about that debate that's basically the theatrical cut and the director's cut are the two okay that are important for that the, the right. final cut is like no this is Ridley Scott's you know pure vision that's great, but we can figure out kind of what he was trying to say with, mm-hmm. with the 92 director's cut. So now we can get into talking about the themes involved okay. in the film. Uh, so like, you know, before we do that, mm-hmm. any, anything like this, this isn't our end of, end of episode, you know, what do you take away? But like, before right. we get into yeah, yeah. Mid, analysis, mid-tone. what do you think? Well, um, I go back and forth when it comes to uh, different cuts. Like I said, I tend to watch the director's cut first and then the theatrical cut. And this is because uh, directors very often will cry foul. And as I have seen, um, studios are kind of important on reining a movie in and making it make sense Mm -hmm. to the vulgar masses. Like, George Lucas clearly needed that for episode four, <laughs> uh, you know, as evidenced yeah. by episodes one, two, and three. Yeah. Um. So, 
and and I'm thinking of you know the the other one that that's so painfully obvious is John Milius's uh, cut of Conan the Barbarian mm-hmm. has and and he even shows you he's like he's like here's what I cut out and I was like yeah good good why didn't you cut this other part out <laughs> because the theatrical cut was way better yeah <laughs> like you know and and it's almost like I think directors I don't I don't want to generalize actually but it seemed like John Milius at least um how to put wanted good scenes in there that that were his darlings and he didn't want to kill his darlings Mm -hmm. and the studio was like cut for time (laughs) and the result was he had to kill his darlings and thank goodness he did because his darlings were shit um I think about Ridley Scott with Gladiator because that's most of my experience with Ridley Scott is Gladiator. Okay. Um, and he just pompous ass. Oh my god! Now, grant you, it is Roman history. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to take exception with him saying, "Well, were you there?" It's like fuck you. Um, but as a film goes, yeah, because somebody took issue with the idea of them lighting their their arrows on fire. That you would have this like oh this... oh I didn't take issue with them lighting their arrows on fire. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no, no. I took issue with the fact that they used fucking bows in the opening in the first place. They had archers. They had auxiliaries who were archers. Yeah. And by the time we're talking about with Marcus Aurelius, they absolutely had co-opted plenty of archers from the east. Yeah, but six foot long, you longbows? Yeah, no, no. Yeah. but And and so when people took issue with, you know, it, it, and what he did was clever. I mean, I'm yeah, like, cool. If you're making fantasy shit, this is very clever. Yeah. You have that that uh, ditch of pitch, right? Yeah. And you dip yeah, your yeah. bows into it and then, you know, light each other's fires. Very clever, but somebody pointed that out to him. He's like, well, were you there? How do you know they didn't? And it's like, oh, so that notwithstanding, yeah. he cut some scenes out that were for time and were for tone. Like he'd already proven how Cuckoo Commodus was going. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't need the scene where he stands in front of the long bowman about to execute someone. Um, okay. That, that scene got cut. Yeah, and it, they left out, you know, and they took out the scene where he goes downstairs and he hacks to pieces the bust of his father, mm. um, and then the next scene he says, "I'm vexed. I'm very vexed," um, and it just it didn't quite work, and I think he did a good job of cutting that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm still just kind of thinking in terms of you know Ridley Scott. I don't know that I want him having full artistic control of of a movie. Okay. So, you know, the the studio may have been wrong in its meddling, but I don't think the studio was wrong to meddle. Uh, No, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. The distinction between had it coming and deserved it. Yeah. Or or they they were entitled to do it. They did a bad job. I think it's more that. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The job they did was shit. The fact that they should have done that job is is, uh, perfectly acceptable. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, that's that's I guess where I'm at uh, as far okay. as that goes. And of course, noting the patterns that uh, Harrison Ford continues to shoot first, continues to get beat up and everything, mm-hmm. and continues to play 1930s icons. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce around in my in my notes here a oh, little yeah. bit in terms of of themes, and I'm gonna start with environmental degradation. Okay. Yeah. Um, anytime you're outside mm-hmm. in this film, 
uh, with the exception of the happy ending sequence. Uh, or anytime you're looking out a window. Phrasing? But it's yeah. yeah, okay. It's always raining and not okay. a little bit. It's not drizzling. It is pouring down rain. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of references to the collapse of the environment on Earth. It's not terribly overt, but mm-hmm. like the whole thing with the snake. Right. Um is is a huge deal in, in getting that across. Uh, which is taken from the novel, but it's there's no mention in the movie of any nuclear exchange. There is no mention of World War Terminus. Mm-hmm. So in this version of the future, there's no evidence that that happened. It's just we have destroyed the planet. We have destroyed the environment. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's the Jetsons. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So the 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 ending that Warner Brothers tacked on to the end gives us this idea that, well, you know, outside the cities, there are still forests and clear skies. And that completely changes. I initially in my notes said undercuts, but I don't think it necessarily undercuts. I think it changes the moral of that to a message about urban overcrowding urban pollution like Mm -hmm. turns it turns it into a a a a a very different statement it's not it's not anymore about human stewardship of the whole planet it's now symbolic for the corruption of the cities or corporate greed or something you would, and uh, and implies that there is an escape possible on Earth. You had talked about was it was it in this series of episodes or was it in a different one? Uh, Ronald Reagan noticing acid, acid rain. rain. Yeah, it was. It was last episode. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. Um, so you know, clearly environmentalism is in there, but it, I do like that you're you're pointing out that there is there's still a way out. It's it's almost as though the Reaganism has infected the message. Mm-hmm very much yeah yeah um you know we can't we can't leave everybody with this vision of a planet that we've actually destroyed because that's too much of a drag you know we can we can still fix things and you know it's not really that bad like Mm -hmm. you know this is the same kind of this is roughly the same time period where we started uh learning about the damage that we were doing to the ozone layer with chlorofluorocarbons right right and it took massive legislative efforts to to fix that problem. That now, looking back on everything, the banning of CFCs is one of the few happy stories we have where like, no, we succeeded and like things got better. You know, um, whereas looking back on this movie now, I'm kind of like, wow, this was awfully prophetic for a movie made in 1982. Yeah. So... You like know, we knew that. shit was happening. <clears throat> yeah. And so, yeah, this, the, there, there are two very different messages about it, depending on which, which version of the film you see. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, and this isn't, this isn't ever overt, but looking at it now with a 2020s lens where we're looking at uh, colonialism and imperialism. Yeah. 
we we literally are bombarded during the film with uh, advertisements for people to go to the outer colonies. Sure. You know, which makes it interesting that at the end of the theatrical movie, no, you can escape all of this awfulness here on earth. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in Dick's novel and in the director's cut of the film, the only way to escape all of it is to go to the outer colonies to colonize these other planets. Right. And uh, Roy references the light from a tent from the Tannhauser gate, which like sounds like some kind of, you know, interstellar gateway. Uh, And the replicants are described as having been designed to work in harsh environments. Right. Roy and Leon, if you watch closely, there there are moments on the screen where their their background and essentially their specifications are included. Roy and Leon were both soldiers. Uh, Leon, as I remember, was a was designed to be a tank a, a loader on a tank. Okay. Which explains why he's, you know, six six and weighs three hundred. Right. Um and uh, Jora was designed to be an assassination model. Okay. And Pris is the only one who's not a not a soldier by design. Uh, she's a comfort model, pleasure model. Sure, sure. Um, and they have been deliberately created to be an underclass in the colonization of other planets. Okay. And they are dehumanized mm-hmm. throughout the movie by the system and even, and even by our protagonist. They are consistently dehumanized. Mm-hmm. And the movie b- begs the question, can we know whether we are human or one of them? Until our death. Until, but yeah. Right. Which you have to remove their humanity to find out yeah. if they had humanity. Yeah. Huh. So, you know, interesting. That, that yeah. kind of resonates in the same way that Firefly did too, because isn't there like a high degree of sino sinophilia? Um, and it, well, there, in, I mean, in Firefly, yeah, in Firefly, uh, there definitely there is, is yeah sinophilia for in sure. In this yeah. one, there seems to be a high degree of nipponophilia. Like, isn't there? Well, okay. So now I'm gonna now I'm gonna shift over okay. to the very first thing I noted as a theme, which is the heavy, and I mean heavy, mm-hmm. Japanization of the background in right. cultural elements. So he sits right. down at a soba noodle stand, mm-hmm. or a uh, uh, either yeah, soba or ramen. Anyway, noodle stand out on yeah. the street. Um, one of the most iconic images from the film is a multi-story tall uh, hologram, billboard-sized hologram with the face of a geisha in full costume and makeup. There are Japanese characters in, in the neon all around him. Um, and Graf, of course, compulsively folds origami figures. Right. So there is this intense Hence, Japanization. And you've got this, you've got an assassin, you've got a yeah. pleasure bot. Um, mm-hmm. 
I mean, you're pulling on certain themes of American yeah. understanding of Japanese culture, you know, the geisha idea, mm. the 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 dragon yeah. lady idea. So, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. And now, of course, this is pretty, pretty simple to point out is this is 1982, the sure. era of, you know, uh, exported unemployment <laughs> from Japan. I mean, at this point, we're not seeing <laughs> no. it as it, it is. Uh, it's 80, 87, 88, 89, when like the Americans are just like sounding every goddamn alarm they can. But we are seeing yeah. Toyota cars really making their way mm -hmm. over to the Americas. Uh, even yep. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Datsun starting mm -hmm. to show up, which is yeah, yeah, Nissan. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and it, Honda, Honda, Toyota, Datsun mm -hmm. all beginning to show up. And the, the looming success of Japan's rebuilding mm -hmm. after World War II is starting to be something that's getting noticed. It's not 100% right. in the mainstream yet. I'm trying to remember when, you know, the first of the, you know, American Ninja movies got made. Um, uh, but it's the same. Are... It, it is the same decade. Yeah, it's the same decade. It's within a few years of this. Yeah. So I think American Ninja 3 is like 85. But yeah, you start to see a lot of, yeah. Like I said, uh, Nipponophile type type stuff. Yeah, actually, the very first one is eighty five. American Ninja is a nineteen eighty five American oh, martial okay. arts action film. So we're three years out from that. Um, so you know, it's is that the one with Michael Dudikoff. They're all with Michael Dudikoff. I thought. Oh, I'm thinking of the movie Ninja, which oh, is okay, different yeah. than American Ninja. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. that's how many goddamned ninja, ninja movies got made. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which which would be a couple of episodes all on right. its own. Right. So. Um, okay. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So. Corporate power and hubris. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's really starting to pick up. <laughs> yeah. In the 80s. Like you're yeah, starting well, to yeah. see that that separation between the lowest and the highest paid in a corporation is no longer, mm -hmm. you know, like low double digits. Well, it's the, now. it's, it's all of the Why? tax structure and economic uh, policies of the Reagan administration that kicked yep. all of that off. Yeah. Dropped it down to 37%. I think by the time this movie came out. Yeah. yeah. So the trip to Tyrell tower at the beginning of the film mm -hmm. is a visually amazing scene mm -hmm. and the spinner, the, the flying car that they approach in um, approaches this, this Titanic ziggurat ziggurat ziggurat. I don't know. Ziggurat. Ziggurat. Mm -hmm. It's the Tyrell tower is this isn't a tower. It is an immense step pyramid kind of structure mm -hmm. um, that takes up a city unto itself sure it's it's reminiscent of an arcology if you're familiar with that with that concept out of out of science fiction or futurism um not, and when i I'm say not. futurism i mean like not the philosophy but anyway right right you don't so, mean the and, people and, that went off yeah. and got killed during world war one yeah no i'm not talking about that but no, the concept of an arcology 
And yeah. Arcology is a self-contained city. Okay. It is it is a, a city that is one large multi-story, multi-acre structure where everything is a designed thing. All of the all of the living spaces are in a particular place and there are you know, recreational areas and there are marketplaces and industrial stuff is done down on the bottom floors. And it's, it is this concept of a microcosm community. Like it's, it's been, it's the idea of an arcology is something that people have looked at when they've thought about colonizing Mars, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so Terrell tower is this, city unto itself it is titanic in scale right and it takes at least a minute and a half maybe two minutes of movie time just for them to to approach the structure and get to where they need to be to meet terrell it is this dominant huge thing and then they meet terrell himself and he is a low-key mad scientist so we meet this guy. He has a genetically engineered owl as his pet. Okay. And there's and there's a moment when they when when they're in his apartment right before they're going to interview Rachel, right before Decker's going to interview Rachel. There's this shot that is clearly deliberate on on Scott's part. This was mm-hmm. not just like, oh hey, look how that happened. Like Right. The, the owl t- turns its head and we have this close-up of the light shining at an angle into the owl's eyes and then mm-hmm. gleaming out Neat. Okay. in this in this clearly there's there's a symbol here mm-hmm. <laughs> like you right. don't do anything <laughs> scott does not do anything by accident this is clearly there's something going on and tyrell himself uh also uh the logo of tyrell corp involves the top portion of an owl's head from from basically okay the bottom of the eyes up with the kind of horned owl you know uh you know horn feathers and and the big eyes so this is this again another level of this is very clearly an important symbol and then we see tyrell and he's wearing these enormous glasses that distort his own eyes in a couple in a couple of shots sure you know the 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 angle is such that his eyes look enormous and then he looks then he looks directly at us and they look close to normal again but there's this very conscious kind of focus on his eyes and he has created rachel as his secretary and assistant he has convinced he has created her to not understand her own nature he has used her as an experiment to see how close he can get to making a replicant that thinks it's a human Mm -hmm. okay um and then when roy shows up i already talked about this uh roy is very to anybody who is not bug fuck crazy Mm-hmm. Roy exudes menace. I mean, it's Rutger Hauer playing this uber Aryan looking guy with murder on his mind. Mm-hmm. And and Terrell, at no point does Terrell feel threatened. 
he 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 sure. has this idea of himself as the creator and um he's too busy admiring his own genius mm-hmm. to to realize how much peril he's in and and again as as you noted mm-hmm. batty kills him right batty kills him by gouging out his eyes right so huge eyes there's the scene with hong uh with with the scientist that that hong plays uh where where eyes are a motif the owl the owl being the symbol of of uh terrell corporation there's clearly symbolism going on here and Mm -hmm. as i said Ridley Scott does not do anything by accident. And all of these were very conscious choices. Sure. And I think my own take on it is he's looking at, uh, he's trying to make a point about uh, trying to look too far or trying to see more than we can handle. See, because what I'm getting, you, know, you got the, all the owl stuff, right? And then you yeah. got the the gouging out and stuff like that. What and and guy who hasn't seen the movie uh, says, um, yeah. What I'm seeing is very much the Minerva Arachne story. Like, okay, remind me, Minerva Arachne. Ara- uh, Arachne is uh, the the best weaver of all time, etc. Mm-hmm. She's a Lydian, and everybody's like, wow. Everybody in Lydia thinks she's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, she's yeah, like, yeah, shit, yeah. man. If 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 the gods themselves came down, I'd beat their ass at this. I'm the best. Mm-hmm. So you got the hubris. And uh, so then yeah. Minerva shows up as an old woman, as an old okay. crone. And she's like, uh, so you think you're the best? And she says, oh, yeah. If, if Minerva herself, she's like, you know, I wouldn't get too cocky there. And she's like, no, I'd, I'd whoop Minerva's ass. So then, of course, the old woman is Minerva. She un-old woman. She turns into Minerva. She says, I challenge you to a contest then. And Arachne's like, fucking bring it. So they set up looms next to each other. And uh, they they go at it. And Minerva does this beautiful tapestry of all the greatnesses of the gods. And Arachne does this beautiful tapestry of all the shittinesses of the gods. Mm-hmm. And Minerva is like, you know, and everybody is like, it is hard to tell the difference in skill here. It really is. And Minerva is like, you don't get to diss us like that. Fuck you. And so she turns, she, uh, she, she rebukes her and Arachne runs off and goes to hang herself. Minerva shows up and turns her into a spider. Mm -hmm. That's why spiders weave webs because yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the whole thing is, you don't get off that easy. Yeah. You don't get (laughs) off that easy. Um, And also don't, don't challenge the gods you know so mm-hmm. it, it feels it's kind of got that vibe of okay. like you know you are trying to do too you're challenging god you're trying to create the perfect mm-hmm. being yeah. um and the owl is very much a minervan symbol that's true so i i forgot that minerva was athena's roman name oh shit i'm sorry so i remembered no it's yeah. fine i, I just yeah. you said arachne and minerva and i was like well i know the story of arachne but what to do with minerva <laughs> right and, I'm, and then and then you start telling the story i'm like all oh, right minerva roman forgot right. okay right. sorry mind. all right yeah. no no worries it's you know yeah uh yeah i think i think that's that's a good that's a good interpretation he might have been uh, pulling from it 
on some levels, you know, there's, there's... I, I think, I think he's borrowing from mm-hmm. the toolbox of symbols that sure. dates back to that era. I think also and mechanical I think, owls I think the message... were really big in the early 1980s. Uh, yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> oh, it... we haven't done one on Clash of the Titans. Have we, we not. We uh... might. We might yeah, have to. That might need to be a joint venture. I don't know. Ray Harryhausen. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, you're right. There there are a couple of major films there with artificial owls as mm-hmm. a thematic element. Yeah. So yeah. Um there is there is the the hubris there of personally of Terrell. And then there is the power of the Terrell Corporation. Sure. Like it is it is pretty clear that the only reason Deckard gets orders to hunt down Rachel is because she has fled from Terrell. And so as long as she was under Terrell Corp's control, sure. well, okay, they're violating this really important critical law that we literally enforce with a juryless death penalty. Right. But you know it's Terrell Corp. So what are you gonna do? Right, right. And fuck it, that... it's Chinatown. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so that's one. That's very noir. And number two, that's really, 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 really cyberpunk. Okay. That is so intensely yeah, cyberpunk yeah. in a huge, big way. And that's possibly for that's that's. An, an angle to get into in a, in a later episode for analysis of that. But sure. that is, that is one of the, one of the themes that we see coming. I would say out of this film, I mm-hmm. I'm not even going to say out of the genre. I'm going to say like out of this film, the visual representation of that corporate power and that corporate hubris is you can draw a straight line mm-hmm. from Terrell Corp in this film to Genom Corp in Bubblegum Crisis, which is a very important uh, anime interpretation of cyberpunk stuff that also involves androids, artificial humans. And yeah, it's like cyberpunk superhero noir. Like there's so many different threads to it. It's kind of bonkers and I love it. I love it dearly. Um, But it's, better saved for another other episode <laughs> um but but this is this is a moment where you can see a whole lot of writers and game designers and other filmmakers had an aha moment watching mm-hmm. this film and then went on and took that idea in yeah, different directions it seems the genesis of a lot of things oh yeah man. the yeah. proto version yeah yeah, yeah. So now humanity and empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the audience, are left to consider the ethics of Deckard's work. Without Deckard ever really looking like he worried about it very much. And now part of that's an artifact of it being an 80s film and uh-huh. the way the way violence happened in 80s films was coded very differently and... You know, every one of the Nexus Nexus Six replicants puts up a fight, right? That in some way shows they are in fact superhuman. Yeah. And in every instance, we get a palpable sense of danger from them. Leon and Roy yeah. obviously nearly 
kill Deckard like outright. Right. But uh, Chris manages to get some really good hits in, and it's very clear how inhumanly fast she is in that in that encounter and and the way that one is done um she has created a situation where he goes in after her and she winds up ambushing him because symbolically she hides amongst a bunch of sebastian's dolls right right. you know and it's creepy as all hell i mean it's yeah this is just an amazing goddamn movie so like every time i talk about how great a scene is i know it's getting repetitive but like no seriously it's amazing and so we we consistently get this palpable sense of danger from them even the ones who aren't soldiers mm-hmm. you know jora doesn't like if you if you look really closely you can see a line of text indicating she's an assassin model Right. But the context in which we see her is she's an exotic dancer with a pet snake. But even though that's the context in which we see her, she's still stronger than a normal human, leaps farther than a normal human can, runs, you know, like she is clearly superhuman. So there's this this interesting Frankenstein's monster aspect to them that somewhat mitigates the novel's questions about who's more human. Because in the novel, we don't see them being mm-hmm. stronger than humans. We don't see them being faster. They don't present the same kind of physical threat. Right. So there was this decision made, like, maybe it's for tension. Maybe it's for, like, thriller purposes mm-hmm. to make us, uh, you know, get more invested in the danger that Deckard is facing doing this job for whatever reason though <clears throat> it's still in in the moment of retirement to mm-hmm. use the euphemism out of the film seeing them having been so scary a second before makes it easier for us to to watch them getting killed mm-hmm. without having the same kind of qualms that you yeah. have reading the book. Yeah. I could I could see that because like we're we're setting it up where okay, they they live in a world where they're also capable of this violence, therefore killing them is, yeah. is not just an innocent being destroyed. Yeah. It's yeah. it it makes it more morally neutral. Mhm. So, now in the director's cut and the final cut, Mhm the question remains at the end of the film of whether Deckard himself might be a replicant. And now that parallels a moment in the novel where Deckard and another bounty hunter are forced to administer the empathy test to themselves. Like they give the test to each other Uh, because in the novel, there's this moment where Deckard goes into a police station. He gets, he gets lured into a police station Mm Mm-hmm with this other bounty hunter only to find out that the whole uh, station, the whole police station is full of androids Mm -hmm. who have created it as a ruse and a trap to catch (laughs) bounty hunters. And they, they have to bust their way out and then they're both paranoid. And so they administer the, the test to each other. Okay. And in the book, it is explicitly stated that no, no Deckard is a human who has developed a heightened level of empathy toward androids. 
mm-hmm. because in the book he's starting to question the morality of his job. So the blurred lines around the concept of humanity remain. Sure. But the movie isn't asking the same moral question that the book did. Empathy is a key part of the Voigtkampf test in in the okay. in the film. They, they they sit down and anybody who's who's ever looked up Blade Runner online has probably seen at least part of this clip where we see Leon taking the test at the very beginning of the movie and this other Blade Runner is asking him these questions and we're watching Leon's heart rate and we're watching the dilation of his pupils and all these mm-hmm. biometrics as the Blade Runner uh, tells him, you know, you're walking in the desert, you encounter a tortoise and you kick the tortoise over mm-hmm. and you watch it laying there in the boiling heat and it's flailing its limbs and, and it's 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 this scenario that's that's designed to stress you out if you have a sense of empathy that like why would i do this this sucks why are you describing this horrible right suffering of this of this creature and in the film leon snaps and flips the table and and kills the uh, the first uh, blade runner mm-hmm. who's been sent after him which is the reason that they've hired deckard because you were the best et cetera, et cetera. so it's empathy is a key part of the white camp test but at the very end of the film, Roy, who who should fail the test mm-hmm. and who is a murderer, we have seen him kill people, Right, shows empathy for Deckard in literally the final moments of his life. Yeah. And in the theatrical release, there's a there's a, a voiceover that I actually think isn't so bad where we we get a little bit inside. Uh, uh, Deckard's head where he says in that moment uh, maybe he he just didn't want to see anything die unnecessarily or words to that effect right and it's like well okay if that's not empathy I don't know what is but that it's a generalized empathy though not a specific to that person empathy okay you know it's it's okay it's I don't like bullies versus I don't like you it's all right. You know, I yeah. it, it's it's all lives that. matter. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Um, but I mean, it's still something. It's it's yeah. still there. I you yeah. Know, but yeah. So, you know, we we have we have these questions, and the the book is the book leaves you a lot more ambiguous about is this ethical? Is this is this mm-hmm. right? Was this moral? Who? Who is really more human? Right. The movie kind of leaves you with the question of, okay, how do we define human? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. What What is it the is, measure of a man? Yeah. It is. It is uh, broadening the focus mm-hmm. significantly, and yeah, it's just it's interesting how the how the how the questions shift between the two. Mm-hmm. And so then final theme I want to talk about is mortality and fear of death. Okay. Deckard spends the entire film trying to hunt down for artificial people. And in the process, he is consistently putting himself into situations where his life is in danger. Mm-hmm. L- Batty, Roy, Leon, Jorah, and Pris 
have all come to Earth specifically to try to find a cure for their shortened lifespans. Right. And so we have Deckard, who is chasing after his own death Mm -hmm. in order to deliver death. And we have the replicants who are are killing people repeatedly Mm -hmm. on a quest to extend their own lives and escape death. It's almost vampiric. Kind of. Yeah. The earth itself is dead. Right. And humanity is dying. So you're killing a dying breed. Yeah. On a dying planet or on a a dying planet. planet. Yeah. And in the, in the midst of all that is this one moment of very clear Christ imagery and is it redemption for the Android? Like does, does do replicants, do replicants have a soul? Can they go to heaven? Because this one is clearly acting as a Christ figure for us. Right. With a pierced hand and a dove. Like, I'm sorry. Can we find a way to put some barbed wire around his scalp to make it more obvious? Like, what do we need to do? Um, and, and, I mean, I'm talking about how a huge anvil is being dropped there, but it's also an incredibly powerful moment of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, uh, you don't always have to be subtle for it to work. Right. You know, and so there's this, and and of course, the, the Tears in Rain mm-hmm. monologue is this amazing, remarkably short, reflection on the ephemeral nature of experience and consciousness mm-hmm. in the face of mortality. I mean, it ends with time to die. Right. Famously also Roy Batty at the beginning of the fight sequence, Roy Batty says, wake up time to die. And so that fight sequence is bookended <laughs> by that phrase. There's also an aspect, meaning very different things. There's also an aspect of, of mortality. Um, that it, it that's it it creates a life worth living because it gives you um urgency like what's the point it, it this is you know the the thing i always complain about um most vampire movies they miss the point of it mm-hmm. is what's the point of of getting up in the morning if you're never going to die where's the urgency mm-hmm. and so when you've got these replicants that live for only four years yeah um that that is a very heightened thing and yeah. and when they're not accepting of their reality or they're unaware of their reality mm-hmm. uh that is a very heightened thing now and so his whole time to die thing i mean it could very much be like i'm going to squeeze all the juice out of this pickle that i can yeah um and i i certainly want more of it so yeah. how do we get there but i i do think it's interesting that you have these superhuman creatures uh, mm-hmm. that are very hard to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, I don't know that they are, though, because you just shoot them and they die. But Well, but you've got to hit them. <laughs> right. So short and, of, short and, of murder. Yeah. Um, they're, they're hard, it's hard for them to die, except that they're going to time out in four yeah. years. Yeah. So they, you know, you said, you know, uh, they're, they're almost more than human. Um, yeah, they're squeezing an entire lifetime into four years. Mm-hmm. You know, every every moment is far more precious to them. Yeah, so. the candle that burns brightest burns shortest. Yeah, so. yeah. 
Um, and and I want to before before somebody comes at us comes at me uh, on Twitter because somebody will. Um, the first time we hear "Time to Die" is not Roy; it's Leon mm-hmm. who who picks uh, Deckard up off the street and says to him, uh, "Wake up, time to die!" Before nearly beating him to death, before right. Rachel shoots him. So, so, but for Deckard, that phrase is still a bookend. I was kind of right about that. It's mm-hmm. just I I misplaced it in the timeline of the film. Gotcha. So, wanted it because I know I know somebody would be like, oh no, right? Because I was wrong. Like okay. legitimately, I I screwed that up. So anyway, um, I I had wanted to um sit down and and rewatch the film mm-hmm. uh, for recording. And unfortunately, um, I was misled about where I could try to stream it. And uh, then once I did figure out where I could stream it, um, parenting and such got in the way of me being able to find the two hours to sit down and watch it. So anyway, um, so that is that is what I have about Blade Runner. I think it would be best. Because there's there's a whole lot more to say, but mm-hmm. what I have to say from here has less to do with Blade Runner itself and has a lot more to do with cyberpunk as a genre okay. and um, a little bit about uh, Blade Runner 2049, the 2017, 2015 sequel, Yeah, um, which is also an amazing film and in many ways is more like the novel, even though it's a sequel to this movie. Okay. So I think this is a good place for this conversation to stop and a separate conversation about 2049 and cyberpunk as a, as a subgenre. Mm-hmm. I think is, is where we would go from here. Okay, cool. So what do you, what do you take away? Um, I think, (laughs) I think my limitations as both a reader and a watcher will still keep me from this. Mm. Uh, I think it would be a better book for me to read than a movie to watch because the genre of it being uh noir still is a huge block. And at the same time, because it's not a Star Wars book, I don't know how into it I could get. <laughs> so, it's not a Star Wars book or a or, or a, a history book, scholarly, yeah, yeah. or or popular. You're okay with popular histories too, but yeah, yeah, we yeah. we we give, Stephen you Ambrose know. can go fuck off, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> by, by and large, yes, <laughs> I, I I prefer a good good mono, monograph, um, but yeah, it's 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 not those two things, and so. Like, yeah, I am a sorcerer. I am not a wizard, you know? So, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. I, all right. All right. So, yeah, Yeah, it it sounds like the philosophical shit that it brings up is really interesting to me. If there Mm -hmm. were, uh, if there were essays written about it, I would probably dig those. Oh, dude. Like the philosophy of, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, my sweet summer child. Have I got news for you? Oh, Google, like, oh, there has been so much ink spilled okay. about this movie. Oh my god! Yeah, the thing is, it was not a huge success theatrically. Mm-hmm. 
but it right, was right. seminally important within the genre. Like it, it sparked the imaginations of a whole lot of people who came after sure. and the philosophy and the symbolism. And there are so many rabbit holes. So many people have not just fallen down, but have enthusiastically dug mm. deep deep into the bowels of the earth okay about this movie so right. yeah if you if you look rock. around you'll be able to find them yeah yeah um and and i would i would urge you to like sitting down and sitting through the whole film it's it's 117 minutes it's not short i mean it's not like magnum opus length but it's it's no it's a fairly no, it's, long movie yeah and it's and it's dark and it's uh, like like physically actually dark to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so like yeah, it 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 can be hard to sit through visually if you're turned off by noir. Sure. And what I, what I would urge you to do though is there are sequences out of this film that are really 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 important uh within within science fiction uh like roy body roy betty's monologue is is the most obvious one but Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. visuals the visuals of los angeles in this movie's 2019 are really important to understanding a whole host of subgenres and in imaginings that came after this so yeah okay cool well uh what you reading uh right now what am i reading i am uh still when i have uh moments to be able to sit down and read an actual book um i am uh working my way through through uh two gun witch Mm-hmm. which using that verbiage is a disservice to the book. Um, but I am, I'm reading two gun, which um, the length of time it's taking me to get through. It has a lot less to say about the book than it does about the amount of free time I have available. Sure. Um, by again, by friend of the show, Bishop O'Connell an amazing work. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Please go pick it up. And how about you? What are you recommending right now? I'm going to recommend James Stevenson's The Worst Person in the World. Uh, I recently just rediscovered this book. Um, It's one that I had forgotten the title of. I'd forgotten the author's name. It took uh, me getting onto a special group on Instagram to find said title and book. Uh, And then I went and ordered it for myself uh, because I missed this book quite a bit. It is a children's book. Um, Oh, and it's okay. it's it's just it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So go check it out of the library because they are uh, few and far between to find, and it's it's not worth fifty bucks um, to go and find it. So go go find it in the library. Um, but that's that's what I'm going to recommend this week uh, to, okay. to maybe perk up the noir. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's it. Where can people find you on social medias? Uh, I can be found on social media at E.H. Blaylock on Twitter, and I can be found at Mr. Underscore Blaylock on TikTok, uh, although of late I'm mostly lurking on TikTok, not generating a lot. So found is kind of a mystery. Yeah, found. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Stumbled um, over. Stumbled upon. Yeah. 
uh, tripped over, perhaps, uh, or, or, you know, pulled kicking, screaming out of obscurity. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see. So that's, that's where I can be found. We of course, collectively can be found at uh, geek history time on Twitter and at www.geekhistorytime.com on the internet directly. And of course, if you're listening to us, you have found us either on our website or on the Apple podcast app or on Stitcher, wherever it is that you have found us, please subscribe and give us the five-star review that you know we deserve. Um, And how about you? Where can you be found, sir? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Duh Harmony. You can also find me. Let's see. This will come out. You might be able to get in to see the 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 November 4th show, but I'm pretty sure you're going to, by the time this releases, you'll be going to the December 2nd show uh, at Luna's for Capital Punishment. Okay. Uh, bring proof of vax. Bring $10. I strongly recommend wearing a mask because there's a whole bunch of variants out there that are getting around everything else, mm. so they won't get around the mask as well as everything else. Uh, but December 2nd at Luna's 8 p.m. in Sacramento and also January 6th, uh, same place, same time, same conditions. So all that's, right, that's where you can find me. So very cool. For Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.